0: Welcome to the Better You Podcast, a show about maintaining healthy habits, living well, and the people who do both in their personal and professional lives. Hey everyone, Sean here. Today on the podcast, we're joined by Ari Kayumi. I first met Ari when she was a researcher out at Stanford in their Center for Persuasive Technology. Ari knows a ton about behavior, and we'll get into the fundamentals of what makes behavior happen, dive deeper into persuasive consensual and mindful technology, some of the ways the biggest tech players are leveraging behavior to impact and hopefully improve our lives, touching on a couple that may not be, including Facebook and their recent lawsuit. And we'll dive deeper into some of the things she's doing at mindful VC to improve that ecosystem. Let's dive in. Ari, thanks so much for joining us today on the Better You Podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Well, really excited, you know, especially the work you're doing around mindful and consensual technology. A lot of tech companies have been making headlines in the past couple of weeks here in October for employing I guess maybe less admirable tactics, I'm talking about the Facebook being sued by 41 states. And I love that I called it the Facebook because maybe we're in 2005 here somehow, I have no idea. Uh, Have you caught up, have you seen any of the the allegations that they're throwing around around uh, Instagram and some of the experiential things they're doing to make it more addictive for young people? What are your thoughts on the case if you've seen it at all?
1: Yeah, great question. Uh, Very timely in terms of us recording this. So I've seen some of them. I haven't read everything in full. We just finished our our annual conference. Uh, But I think a lot of this has been in the makings for maybe the last decade, right? So pretty familiar with that. I think this is going to be a pretty pivotal time and a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for people who have studied persuasive technology as well as designed it over the last 20 years to actually redefine what persuasive technology is supposed to be instead of pervasive technology, which are very different. And so I'm really looking forward to talking more with you about that today.
0: It's so interesting. You know, with Facebook, one of the the common things that I always try to remind myself is that my reason for using Facebook isn't Facebook's reason for needing me to use Facebook. Right. So I might go to Facebook. My wife, we do a Friendsgiving every year. So I my reason to go to Facebook in the next month will probably be to figure out RSVP situations, how many plates and you know spoons do we need to go buy, things like that. Facebook's reason for getting me to use Facebook is usually around time on page. That's why I have to I have to fight through my feed, go over to that left tab, hunt for uh, you know events, dealing with intermittent variable rewards and all these things that are kind of laid there in my path to keep me there. How do you think about that when you think about the work that you're doing, right? When I think about consensual or mindful technology, it's a really big paradigm shift. I'd love to just learn a little bit more about it from you directly here.
1: So I think one of the the largest shifts we've seen in the last five years are really the companies that are leading in this space right now have been quietly making shifts from persuasive to consensual. And then the last three years, it's been going from consensual to mindful. What does that mean? What are those? So what I when I think about persuasive technologies, they're technologies that can change your attitudes and behavior using persuasive influence, right? Persuasion. Influ- it's like psych- psychological factors. That's great. But then the thing is that when we use technology, technology is a tool to... Do something that we want to do as humans, right? We typically strive to be our best selves, etc. And so consensual technology on a theoretical level is really more about how do we actually um, change our behavior in the way that we want to change, which if you think about it, that requires both a front-end interaction experience, asking the user, well, what do you want? And then not just a one-time thing, you have to follow up with them, right? You have to know what they want over time. And then the second part is um, for now, then if, if we push or I guess actually on consensual technology, it'd be on the back end as well. You have to actually have data that is updating. Hey, this person said they wanted this at this point in time. Now they've actually changed their mind. Let's make sure that we auto update preferences so that we're no longer serving them this, this other experience where we're persuading them to do something, but now they've changed their mind. They don't want to be persuaded in that way anymore. And then the, the other one is, is mindful technology, which I know we can get into, but just for a quick definition there, that would be helping people change their behavior and the way that they want to change as they evolve over time which again requires much more sophisticated front end and back end uh interactions from a from a tech stack perspective.
0: This is so interesting. So let's maybe take an app that we use. I use I use Spotify. I don't know if that's how you're, is that do you use Spotify to listen yes, to tracks or are you on something else? Great. Okay. Yeah,
1: great Some example. Some folks,
0: my wife really likes YouTube Music. So this this may not go out for her, but for Spotify, what would what are things that Spotify could do if it wanted to get more, you know, consensual or mindful? Are there are there things that an app like that could be doing to help make sure that my reasons and their reasons more match up?
1: Absolutely. So we've actually seen Spotify attempt to shift into consensual technology the last three years. So we we have them right now earmarked as one of the companies that's leading the change on the algorithmic side. And just, just for context of people, if they haven't read up on this, some of the things that they have done is they'll do, hey, here's an annual review of songs that you've listened to, or here are some of the top artists that you're frequently listening to. Here are some of the songs that you're frequently listening to. Here are now, other songs or other playlists that are inspired from that. That's not how it started, though. You know, it started off by just being, hey, your friend's listening to this. And that's using social persuade or like social influence to yeah. facilitate someone to listen to something rather than saying, hey, here's something you're, you're already doing. And here's something that's really close to that. Do you want to do that as well? And getting that consent before then recommending an entire list. So that's like one, one baby step that they're taking.
0: You know, one of the things that's so interesting to me about this idea of consensual, and then we'll we'll loop back and we'll dive into wellness because I definitely believe that the the work you're doing around mindful technology and consensual technology, it does involve people's health and mental health, especially. But one of the things when I think about consensual technology that I've maybe not struggled with, but it's a question that we've we've dealt with a lot, is this idea that, you know, their reasons and aren't your reasons isn't necessarily new. I think of my my local grocery store, right? The top two items are milk and pharmacy refills. And the milk is always at the back of the store. And it kind of makes me wonder if it was really designed for me, wouldn't they put it near the checkout so I could just grab it and go? But they know I'm going to go. I'm going to see the end cap. I'm going to be exposed to all these other prompts and things that I could be doing. How do you think maybe technology has has magnified the issue around Getting that consent, or do you have thoughts or reactions on that example and why it ties into some of the work you're doing today?
1: Well, I actually think that's a really good and tangible example because now, hopefully, anytime someone walks into like a Walgreens or a CVS or Safeway, they're going to think that and, and be like, "Huh, I wonder how." Because you know, there's some there's some stores now that are designed intentionally to have the pharmacy at the front or to have the milk at the front, which is really interesting. That's a huge shift. Um, but so, in the technology perspective, I think that there are certain templated designs that people who learned from certain schools of thought and behavior design, it's their go-to and it's not what I would condone. It's not what I would say. Mindful VC approves. And then there's other ones where it comes from a different school of thought and the way that they have their templated design or their approach to how they facilitate those structures, they are what I approve of. The issue in the industry from from my perspective is really more so that there are no standards right now um, and there's no incentive for there to be made standards, which – you know, we'll we'll see what happens with all of this Facebook situation. Like, what do what the lobbyists, you know, hash out? And I, th- I think two people I'm looking at right now are Dean Eccles. He's at MIT, and he's been very, very quiet, but very influential in the persuasive technology space across algorithms, whether that's trading, uh, whether that's e-commerce, etc. cetera. And then there's also Jason Rea, who was previously, he's some kind of C-suite in, in Walmart. But, you know, those two individuals in particular, are, are very thoughtful around their approach to, hey, here is where persuasive technology could eventually convert into pervasive technology. And here's how we we can stop that. So some of the issues that they've been looking at are if you only know what a consumer wants and you kind of understand their general persuasion profile, you could push them in that direction. But if you only ask them at one point in time, you're just going to keep pushing them in that direction. You don't actually change with them over time. And so you actually end up I mean, imagine if you asked me, Ari, who do you want to be when you're 12 or 13? That's a very different person than I am now. And imagine if we just continued to reprime and re-trigger me in that, like I would skateboard. I was like BMX. I didn't even know who I was at that point. It was, and I played violin. <laughs> it was like, I was one person and the other. So it was, it was a very weird situation. I don't know who I would be today.
0: I love this combination of skateboard and BMX and violin. <laughs> I'm just imagining you like you're skateboarding to the violin <laughs> lesson and then you play and you're boarding back home. I think that's so cool. So, so looping back. Cause I, I definitely think of, you know, the work that you're doing and, and this idea of consensual technology, it is an issue around mental health. And so looping back because it better. You, we always like to look at things from that wellness lens. Mm-hmm. When you think about your own journey, your own health and well being where did it start? And how did you kind of get to where you are today?
1: I think a lot of it started just from having, I could say, having a multicultural background and being perceived by other people in very different ways. And, I, you know, I was, I was pretty naive as a kid. I'd just be like, oh, like, okay, da, da, you know, whatever. But it made me a lot more thoughtful around uh, how I perceive myself versus how the world perceives me. And I was fascinated in perception. I was also fascinated in sleep because I really didn't sleep that much as a kid. And then when I was older, I learned that people sleep a lot more and that that's it it was just i remember the first time i slept a full 8 hours waking up the next day and thinking to myself oh this is how life could be great you know and it, and i was like okay so this is important i feel really great and i was just i mean it was amazing so part of it i think was it was rooted in the multiculturalism the experiences growing up of people uh, looking at me one way and then having something. I have like a very, my my first name's Ariana, I mean, or my, my full name's Ariana Amina Kayumi. And in, in Afghan culture, that would be a very well known name. But then my, I mean, I shortened my name to Ari Kayumi. My legal name's still what it is, but people just call me Ari. I didn't really think about it when I was younger, but it has had an impact on my life overall. Like who takes meetings with me, et cetera. They might think I'm a, a Jewish guy because Ari's typically a Jewish guy. And then is more, it can be interpreted as m- multiple things. But that made me think a lot more around, wow, what are all the other data sources or misconceptions, misinformation that, maybe not misinformation, it's information that becomes misinformation because there wasn't a clarification tactic. And that's really what led me to the consensual technology and just making sure that we do this uh, simple sequence of behaviors, ask, listen, clarify, and confirm, prior to saying, yes, this data is something that the system has understood of the user. And this is what the user wants the system to understand of the user.
0: It's fascinating, right? If you don't know what I want, how can you be so confident that you're going to provide an experience that'll get me there? It's very hard. And and I think it ends up being a root cause of some of the problem. We've talked a lot about consensual. What, What mindful technology? Take us to that next kind of evolution. What does that mean? What is it all about?
1: Yeah, and so this kind of – because I didn't totally answer your question. I went on a little bit of a tangent there. But really how I got into that was I started working with uh, this guy named Dr. B.J. Fogg. He's known as – I mean, he's the father of behavior design. I would say a lot of people present-day call him kind of the father of behavior science. And he's so humble. I would say he's not – a lot of people – globally still don't know him because he's been so humble. He only recently published, you know, his first book, which a lot of other books were inspired by him, like Atomic Habits or Hooked, etc. And his, his book is called Tiny Habits. And the fundamental principle is that small changes uh, change everything. And that's, but the thing is that Tiny Habits is not all of behavior design. Tiny Habits is one methodology within behavior design. Um, and so why I, or I guess the direction of Mindful Technologies, really where that took off was studying with BJ in persuasive technology, where he pioneered that whole field. And then seeing, I guess, where things fell short, right, and became pervasive. And then we, you know, we went and we pursued the consensual technologies. But then from that, it was still, hey, you know, I'm not really having this experience where the products are actually evolving at the rate that I want to be evolving or that I am evolving. And I would find suddenly, instead of using one app, I have five, but I really just wanted to use that one. And I needed to add another four in order to st- to like keep up with the other things that I was doing. Perfect world that would be that I'm using, you know, I, I don't know how many, maybe like 10 to 50 apps at most, but that I have these core behaviors and they have sequences. Anyway, the TLDR of that was that it led me to to think, you know. I really want to have these products that can understand who I am right now, where I want to go, and start to match me accordingly, not just with anyone who says, hey, Ari, you should do this, you should, but, like, people who have actually had tangible experience with it. Um, and BJ was so supportive. You know, I've never had a professor say, look, Ari, I think this is the next decade or the next 100 years even of research, and this is a really meaningful space and so that's really how mindful technology started was he kind of pushed me off the edge of a cliff saying you have something here this is legitimate like go test it prove out the concept keep proving it uh it was it was a really meaningful time
0: quite the journey i i like it and so it's interesting you're you're talking about you know really taking that next step from an app that maybe is asking me questions learning about my behaviors so what would be an example or a it could be a hypothetical because i know there may not be many examples there today but is it an app that's you know, it's asking me, hey, you know, here's how much time I want to spend in this experience. Here's what I want to accomplish with this experience. And then there's a feedback loop of making sure that that was time truly well spent. Or how do you kind of see those things playing out in the world today?
1: No, that's a great question. You actually brought up another concept I did. I actually forgot to introduce the time well spent concept. Um, and so this was maybe 2015, uh, starting on that around how do we actually evaluate our time on platforms? I mean, we could even use Better You as an example, right? We're, we're on this podcast. And I think that the way that um, part of why I really liked the what Better You is doing is that the company is using persuasive technology features and, um, I guess, design methodologies, but only after they've received consent from the user that this is how the user wants to change. It's, it's I don't want to say value-based, like health behavior change, but it kind of is because you do, first you're doing goal-based, and then I think, So so that's what, from my view, that's what gets a company, whether it's an app or a platform infrastructure system, what it it gets from persuasive, that's how you convert from persuasive to consensual. And then how we get from consensual to mindful is that it goes from this uh, goal-based behavior change to then also the business model is matched to that, where we know um, that, and also data related. So in mindful technologies, it's not just going to be From my view, this isn't going to be just an app economy. It's really more of an ecosystem play, a data ecosystem play, where we need to look at what is the data that we're actually tracking to facilitate our behavior change success metrics. And do our users actually agree with that? And then do those agreements from the users align with the business model in terms of how we actually make money? Because that data then is what uses for, you know, it drives all of our advertising and this and that, whatever. But if if you have the wrong data, everyone says this, and I don't know why they never end on this point. If we have the wrong data, then you essentially get wrong results. Wait, if we have the wrong data that's feeding all of our advertising, doesn't that mean we're actually being advertised to incorrectly? Hmm, questionable, very interesting, but also really exciting. I think there's a huge space in this market for good things to happen. And I'm, I'm really excited about the pioneering work that we're doing. And that you're doing. I mean, Better You is amazing. I I really, yeah, I'm really excited to see where you take the company.
0: Absolutely. I appreciate it. I I think that business model point, it's so important. One of the things, you know, I think about an Instagram notification you might get that, you know, so-and-so liked a post or posted in a while. And it always sounds so small. Instagram knows if I click on that notification, my average session time is eight minutes or whatever it is, right? They, they know that, but that's never what they're telling me. They're telling me something that makes it feel so bite-sized. And I think it comes back to the business model because the more eyeball minutes they get from Sean in that given day probably lets them charge a higher price to the ads that I might click on or the, you know, that cost per impression world that, that they are operating in today. So, so given that, I'm just curious, are there other examples of, of business models that you're seeing or you think will come about as a result of this push in towards mindful technology? And the, I guess the other point is, as we see more companies move from persuasive to consensual to mindful, what's your theory on how they, they're doing financially? Is it better business to be moving from one end to the other?
1: The incentive or like why I'm so keen on this and have done really deep work on it is that financially companies that are building their tech stacks as persuasive technologies cap their markets very early on and they don't realize it till it's too late. And then um, I, I think of it as persuasive technology is really about the conversion rates. And then consensual technology is about the engagement rates of users. And then when we think of mindful technologies, it's really about the retention rates. And I just want to be really clear here for an example, like a lot of people think that calm is a mindful technology. It's not. It's a consensual technology that is helping facilitate mindfulness, the behavior change. So it's helping people change in the way that they want to change with the box of, I want to be more mindful or I want to practice to meditate or I want to have less anxiety, whatever that is. That is not the same as, hey, if calm actually um, helped you change, so meaning that, You come on the platform, you say that I want to achieve a certain level of, I don't know, maybe like heart rate or cortisol level. They don't test your cortisol levels, but you get what I'm saying. Some kind of thing of, this is what I want, and then the company helps you get there and they help you sustain that kind of performance. Right now, their business model doesn't align with that. They don't say, hey, actually, you've achieved your optimal meditation time per week for this phase of your life, or like for the, you know, some consultants travel four days a week, and then they're back, like they do different things, they have different uh, periods that they need things. But what would uh, a business model that would then align with this kind of behaviors and would move calm from being more of a consensual technology to a mindful technology would be if they had a, I don't want to say an offboarding, but like a community system, where, okay, here are the people who are the champions of our product, they've achieved their Like optimal performance for this kind of behavior sequence in their life, and now we're just going to make sure that they continue to do those behaviors in their community and reinforce them, and have a business model around that where maybe there's ads of hey, like meet up at this local shop to do da da da. Right now they don't even offer that. Instead, it goes back to hey, now you should just meditate more. Hey, now you should just meditate more. But like maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you're actually now marginal. You know, it's marginal return.
0: That's so interesting. Show me the app that's adding so much value that it lets me actually get rid of it on my phone because it's achieved its purpose, right? Like I think of Duolingo in this way. I've done a I know a decent amount of Spanish, Ari. I've never met a Duolingo lesson I couldn't like, just test out of because I, I did a lot in Spanish in school. And they just keep adding more and more random lessons. It's up to 160-something modules now for me to complete. And I kind of go, they're just doing this to keep me here at some point. Like I kind of know what they're trying to tell me. Uh, that's the really best thing for me to do to improve my Spanish is to actually go somewhere and talk to actual people yeah. who want to chat in Spanish. And that, that isn't example. an experience that's a- encouraged today. That's, Oh man, I love that parallel with calm. That's yeah. interesting.
1: Well, and I think also a lot of people aren't thinking about this, like as a, you know, as a founder, uh, I don't know the founders of Duolingo. I obviously know their, their process a lot. Um, I can't comment on it that much, but it, what I can comment on is, you know, imagine when if you when you have founders, and and this is where it gets kind of into these like mindful ventures, like mindful technologies, like mindful VC, all of that. Imagine if you have a founder who's thinking about this, and they're actually thinking about, you know, I don't want to just have a company that's a billion dollar company. I want to have a company that's a billion dollar company that's creating jobs in my local communities in my country, improving our GDP, and actually raising. I don't want to just say the consciousness, but like the education level of um, and the quality of life of the people in my community. And I think that would be really an exciting thing. Um, and so if Duolingo did do something like, hey, Sean is at this level. Why don't we actually have him go and interact in the community with, I don't know children who are at this level and like want to talk in this way or adults who are trying to do this? And something like that, and now suddenly you're actually contributing and sharing that knowledge with your community and or leveling up your own connection within the community.
0: Fantastic. Well, Ari, we mentioned in the intro what you're building with Mindful VC. How do you find companies that are looking to go beyond persuasive technology? Because it seems like that's still where a lot of folks are today. How do you how do you find it and source? It? Do you have a systematic approach or a method that you're using to kind of connect on that side?
1: It really started with a model that BJ had originally. It's very well known in the behavior change space, where we call it BMAP. And so you have motivation on the y-axis, which goes from low to high. And then on the x-axis of a graph, you have it going from, um, you know, something that's hard to do, something on the left, to then something that's easy to do on the right. And then we have something called an action line that goes from the, what do I say, like the high motivation side on the y-axis to then the x-axis on the easy to do side. So think of it as a, like a u-curve that's turned to the right a bit. And then above that, that's where prompts work. And then below that, that's where prompts do not work. So in using this model, it was very helpful to just look at the world in general over time, not just in one point of time, but modeling out, you know, like micro moments, being able to see how founders talk about the concepts of what they are even trying to build before they've even built it has been remarkably simplified by just using this behavior model, because we can see, is this founder actually going after a market that's already extremely highly motivated? Now, are they already going after a market where it's easy for this market to engage with said product? Now, the way that they're pricing it is said price for, you know, this highly motivated person where it's easy for them to do X. How much is said person willing to pay for X? How many people in the world are willing to pay for X, right? You're actually able very quickly to calculate how large is that market. The thing is that not all founders think like this, and so what I learned over time—I I didn't realize it until uh, you know this one woman kind of found me. It was like the way, she's like, "Are you the you know the way you look at the world? This is really special," and uh, she really honed my craft and skill in, in venture capital specifically, but. I can be meeting with someone and I hope that you use this this skill too. It's like there are red flags where if if you're talking to a founder and the way they're talking to you about this is they say, no, no, we just need to motivate them more. No, no, no. Actually, like we're going to go after these people and and they don't really know they want it yet, but like we're pretty sure that they do. These are all like major red flags (laughs) because it means that the founder's judgment and decision making isn't really there yet and totally fine. But as an investor, I want to know that I'm going to invest in a company where I don't always have to check on you. I mean, just as a baseline, right? We Obviously, we intervene and there's other layers. But as if you think about pure investment, when someone's a true investor, typically what you would want to be able to do is at one point in time, you take a snapshot and say, hey, if I invest my money in this person, I know that I can trust for them to do the things that I believe will make the company the best, or whatever, that they believe will make the company the best, uh, even when I'm not intervening. And so that methodology has really proven to be the most simplified way to explain it. Um, it obviously has, has become like way more complex and I have all of my things that are proprietary, but that's really where it started. And I, I think it's one of the things I hope people will take away from this podcast is being able to, um, go after this, this upper right corner before they go, you know, go to the people who are highly motivated, but they, it's not easy for them to do yet and create technology products that help make things easier for people to do rather than just help hype them up for, you know, some kind of unsustainable hour
0: that point you just made Ari, for me in my life, I find motivation can be just so fleeting. And if I'm being asked to do something very difficult, right? Sometimes I have it, sometimes I don't, but when I can reframe that goal, you know, it's the the classic, the goal isn't to run 10 miles. The goal needs to be to put on my running shoes, right? Cause like that's Ooh. something I could do every day. And I need to do that if I'm actually going to go outside at all. But even that reframing, it makes a huge world of difference. I'd love to see the the work that you're doing there.
1: Yeah, I
0: guess Since you've been investing in these companies, what are some lessons that you've learned, things that you've seen as folks are bringing new ideas and new products to market? What are some of those lessons you've learned?
1: I think actually that success breeds success, but only to a point. You know, this is something everyone's learned probably, but you can say you've learned it. And then there's, I guess, you know, it doesn't mean you've actually learned it. And I think now I I really, from a recent experience, like, I I feel like I've learned that because you can have these, these founders who have, they have really great habits in one space. It doesn't necessarily mean that those habits always translate to another space. And it's important to be aware of that and also offer the opportunity for like a safe space where um, there are two people who are experts in what they do in different fields, where it's not that think of a stage setting when someone's on a stage, psychologically, one who's in the audience might think, oh, I'm asking them a question because that person's at a higher level, like literally it's on a physical sure. level. Yeah,
0: yeah. And, and
1: so making sure that we actually have physical and or digital or virtual environments that support these psychological primings that sometimes I wasn't even thinking of is really, really important from perspective of then creating a safe environment for these founders to actually tap into that full potential that they have because it's, it's like if they don't even, if they perceive that they're better than this other person in some way just because of an environmental setting that I set up. But anyway, that, that's like one thing I recently learned was I really do need to be more mindful of, well, I haven't hosted a massive event yet and I would like to, but having a setting where it creates a sense of equality and that, look, if you're here, it means that you were chosen for a very specific reason and each person here is chosen for a very specific reason. Go find that reason. I think that's something that um I've learned is is really special in this space.
0: Creating those spaces, right, where other where people can kind of have that equal footing to share ideas, definitely. Other lessons from the companies, right? You mentioned winning doesn't create winning. Are there instances of that that you've seen play out, you know, for, for on the other side, maybe where someone didn't have expertise in an area, but then it didn't mean they were, you know, not going to be an expert somewhere else?
1: Yeah, no, exactly. So that's kind of where I was going with it. Was that um really what matters in terms of the winning is that you have to define what that actually means. And oftentimes people don't define it. They just find themselves there, which is great. Honestly, it's, it's fantastic. I don't get, I don't feel great about it because I like to have systematic winning and what that means is you have to define it. And what's been really interesting are you have these founders that are bent. I mean, it's not even just founders. You have people in the world who are just their behavior designers and they don't even know it. And that's great. But then once they're able to codify and say in language and talk to each other and talk to their teams about how they're thinking about behavior change, about this system that they just naturally live and breathe, it has, it has an allowed not only those individuals who are natural behavior designers, if you will, but it's allowed their teams to start to tap into this potential, each of them individually and as a team have. And just take it to the next level, and that's been so interesting. So I'm, I'm actually like recently, this is in the last two weeks. I kid you not, I am fascinated with. We need to have a system of language to communicate all the things we do in behavior design because sometimes it doesn't totally resonate with, um, with like hardcore finance people because like we, we use really funny terms sometimes. It's very whimsical, right? And if you're if you think about that on the behavior change path, sometimes people aren't ready to start there yet. You know, you need to kind of wean them into into the different methodologies. But then once you're there, it's great. People having a common language really helps. It saves a lot of time.
0: Well, and, and looping back, you know, as as we start to see more companies take this path from persuasive to consensual to mindful, what are some of the implications just for us as consumers of these products in that light of a health perspective? Where, where do you kind of see some of those benefits as our time gets to be used a little bit more intentionally and, and mindfully here?
1: I think there's gonna be a lot of change in healthcare. Think about right now a lot of companies will make a drug just because they're testing stuff and then they realize, oh, actually it could be used for this. We don't want to lose the money on that, whatever. But now imagine we can work in a world where we know that someone has a certain kind of condition and we can actually uh, create a therapeutic that's specifically governed to solve that problem. That's pretty interesting. Now imagine a world where we don't have to do that in a lab. We can actually use data from past testing and do a synthetic representation that saves billions. So I think I'm really excited about mindful intelligence in the space of what do I say? I guess drug discovery. Fascinating. I think it's a, a really important space. We don't necessarily. I don't necessarily always pursue the like. I don't pursue the drug space, but uh, the technologies that would facilitate those decision making uh, paths. Very interesting to me. I think another one is just going to be on compliance and. I don't wanna say coaching, but more, hmm, how do I say this? We have a lot of middle layer jobs and a lot of people who are really concerned about AI is gonna, you know, ruin the world, I'm gonna lose my job, it's gonna be horrible. And I t- I totally get it, like totally get it. At the same time, now imagine this. You can actually use, like you can go to your job, let's say as a call center person. And instead of having this conversation with someone and then they say you were terrible on the phone, and da, 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 you're able to actually walk through and have a full conversation, checking the boxes of what are the questions, um, you know, you or whatever one is supposed to be asking this patient and also or client, whatever, customer success person that, you know, you're able to see how are you doing when you're talking to them? Are they actually feeling motivated? What's the sentiment of their voice? How do you actually feel like you as the person working after the conversation with this Let's say, let's say I'm an annoying customer calling and I'm complaining. You can put like, this person was really rude to me, right? These things are actually then going to help shift these systems so that you as a worker can actually show up and do the job that you wanted to do um, and feel really good about it and feel purposeful. Like if you're a nurse and you feel rewarded by helping your patients and like there just happens to be a certain kind of personality you don't vibe with. AI can actually now help to match you to the patients that you just vibe generally better with, and you can still help those patients. So I think there are, are a lot of shifts we'll see in healthcare and call centers in matching algorithms, just because we'll we'll be looking at some of those uh, commonalities.
0: Productivity amplifier, maybe not a replacement for people. That's awesome. It's a great take.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: I've got three last questions, Ari. It's been, this has been awesome. We've been crushing it. I love it. There are the three questions I ask everyone. I'm interested in your take. So one, what does wellness mean to you?
1: Wellness to me is I think of it actually as I, I'm very much a columns, rows kind of gal. So I think of things in terms of you have ment you have health in general, but there's like uh, mental, emotional, spiritual, physical, and that's, I would think of as in a, a row And then on the column side, I would think of it actually as there are routines, there are behaviors, there are reminders, there's like all these kinds of interventions and or ways of living out the life. And those combined, I then would score it and think of, hey, wellness for me would be my quality of life has been improved. I'm able to focus more. I'm able to, when someone's talking to me, I'm able to listen before I respond Quite frankly, I'm able to have high accuracy without focusing on precision first, meaning that if someone's asking me a question, I'm able to be accurate on on like a target sign. Accuracy would be you're hitting at the bullseye, right? It's not that whereas and it's like maybe it's all around the bullseye. It's not the bullseye, but it's around it. You're in the general area, whereas precision could be you're not even at the bullseye. You're literally on the corner of the target sign but it's all there. It's like all right, really. Yeah, yeah, there's no spread, yeah. Yeah, and I I think that for me, wellness is really about having these root behaviors that are accurate that then help simplify the rest of my life. Um, And I sleep well. Like, I think that that's, it sounds silly, but it's, a lot of it is around heart rate. It's around like my cortisol levels. Am I able to breathe deeply? Uh, My voice changes depending on how, like, how well I am feeling. And yeah, I mean, like, am I also minimizing my negative externalities? Like, I think something right now I'm really working on is time management has been honestly something my entire life I've struggled with. But part of it, and and this is where it's like people who love me get it and they're sensitive. But if you don't know me, you would probably be very offended if if I'm late to something. It's typically because when you have my time, you have my full time. And that means until we're done with whatever we're working on, I will see it through. But if I if I pack my plate too full, then that means that you know there's something else that's going to go out the window. And so I'm trying to be a lot more mindful and I guess increase my wellness score for my community as well so that I don't have as many negative externalities on people that I care about and want to add value to.
0: I like it. Very comprehensive. It's also the, the view we take over here at Better You in terms of how we see health and well-being What's one simple thing or a tip that you'd recommend for someone who's looking to improve their, their health and wellness?
1: Oh, Oh, I have this one ready. So I would definitely say again, time management, but specifically think about if there's one behavior that actually you could only do it the rest of your life. What is that one behavior that you would do? If there's not just one, think about that sequence. And then I want you to look at your calendar And think about how much time do you actually invest in that on a weekly basis? Because I think that's really important. A lot of people say they want blah, blah, blah. And then you look at how they're actually spending their time. It's not aligned. And there's no way to really reconcile that other than, um, you know, you yourself being mindful of that.
0: Interesting. I've done that time audit exercise with business in mind, but thinking about it even from a more holistic sense, what are the things that you want to be doing in your life? And then how much time are you spending towards those things. It's awesome. Where can people follow you and learn more about the work you're doing?
1: Um, so probably just mindful VC. I think it's like mindful underscore VC. There might be mindful, no underscore VC. Some places typically we're doing that. We also used to have mindful venture capital, but I think really the tags I'm using now are gonna be mindful VC. You could also uh, go to my website, rekayumi.com. For the most part, everything I do though, is going to be really focused on mindful VC, uh, reaching out to my team there. Um, And then maybe getting involved in research at Stanford or quite frankly, I would say founders who go to the boot camp with BJ, you know, they end up being extremely uh, more well prepared to talk with me. And so typically, even if I have a conversation with someone and then it's not going to move forward, that's why it's like they need to have this common language. They need to have practiced it. And so I'd really recommend reading some of the things by Dean, by Jason, by BJ and uh, and then reaching out.
0: Awesome. We'll include some of those links here in the show notes. Ari, it's been great jamming with you here today. This was a lot of fun.
1: Thanks so much, Sean. I really had a good time.
0: Thanks for tuning into the Better You podcast. If you're interested in continuing your journey to improve health and wellness, learn more at betteru.ai.